Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbanit Nachama Goldman Beresh and Rabbi Alex Israel on Parashat Vayeshev. To subscribe to Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbanit Nachama Goldman Beresh and Rabbi Alex Israel. Okay, Shalom. This is Alex Israel here from Pardes, and I'm here together with... Nechama Goldman Barish, also from Pardes. And uh, we're delighted to be with you here to discuss Parshat Vayeshev, this week's Parshat Shavua, this week's Torah portion. And uh, we're each going to have a turn at presenting something from the Parsha. So Nechama, what do you got? So it's hard to choose, Alex. It's really a great parsha with a lot of different stories built into them. But I think I'm going to pick up with chapter 39 in Breshit in Genesis, the Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma. I'm going to pick up with Joseph being brought down. He's been brought down to Egypt after being sold into slavery by his brothers or through his brother's actions. And essentially, he's taken into the home he's purchased by Potiphar, and we're told in uh, the second verse, Vayihi Adonai Yosef, that God is with Yosef, and he becomes successful, and he remains in the houses of, of his Egyptian master, and his master even sees Vayar Adonav Ki Adonai His master sees God is with him, and whatever he did, he succeeds, and Potiphar recognizes the godliness or the favoring by God of Yosef, and essentially he gives him complete custody over his household. Now the story doesn't end there. It seems like a rags-to-riches kind of story, but the story is going to get more complicated, and the more Potiphar's house is blessed, the more Potiphar sees that uh, Yosef is bringing the blessing into his home, and um, and we're told in verse 6, V'yazov kol asher lo biyad Yosef, and at this point, Yosef rises up in power, and we're told that the master leaves everything in Joseph's custody except for the bread he ate. In other words, he so trusts Yosef that only the food that he eats does he does he kind of oversee for himself. And then the pasuk says, the next pasuk is where I want to, you know, uh, begin to to focus the narrative. And only now we're told that Yosef was handsome of form and handsome of appearance, that Yosef was exceedingly beautiful. And that changes, I think, the visual field for us, Alex, because we know people are drawn to beauty and that beautiful people often have opportunities that others do not have. And it explains a lot. Why was he seen by Potiphar in a slave market filled with lots of slaves and singled out? presumably because he was extremely beautiful. And later we're going to see how, you know, he has this charismatic effect over everybody he meets, whether it's the butler and the baker in prison, or whether it's later Pharaoh himself. He makes an immediate impression. And we know that first impressions are often what we, we take away from an initial encounter. And if you're very beautiful, you have an advantage over other people. Now, couple that with his talent and his charisma and his intelligence and all of those things. And it's a very powerful combination of external and internal beauty and talents and so on. But what is Yosef going to do with that, this young guy alone in Egypt? 
Well, the question is, what's the downside? What's going to happen next? The downside is that, uh, let's pick up in the next Pasuk, and we'll see in a moment. And immediately after, we're told how beautiful he is. And this, of course, was the last verse in the series of verses that told us how powerful he has become in the household. After he has become both powerful in the household, and we know that he is beautiful, the master's wife lifts up her eyes, right? We talk about vision and, and what we see, and she sees Joseph. And she basically says to him, sleep with me. And, um, and this is going to be a real test for Joseph. And we know throughout Sefer Breshit, beautiful people are in danger of being sexually desired. This has been the story of Sarah and Rebecca and even Rachel, who... Jo Jacob falls immediately in love with her and we're told she's exceedingly beautiful. And now it's happening to a man. And that's what makes this story singular in the book of Breshit, but it also forces our awareness that not only women are vulnerable to uh, sexual harassment or those who desire them uh, illicitly. Also, we have a beautiful man and he is in the same danger as the beautiful women who came earlier in the narrative. This is, I find, one of the most uh, wild things about this story is just the pressure that you see how, that she puts on him. Because initially she says, Shikhvaimi, and Vayema'ein, he refuses. He says no, but she doesn't take no as a no, right? This sounds so contemporary. And um, he, he gives her all the excuses, but it says, Kedabra, in verse 10, Kedabra el Yosef, yom yom. She speaks to Joseph every day. And he wouldn't agree to, to, to sleep with her. He wouldn't agree to be with her. And it still continues till, till a time when they're alone in the house. Um, it says on a particular day, he came to work. No one was at home. And that's when she grabs him. She grabs his clothes. It seems like she pulls his clothing off because it says he abandons his clothing and runs out. This is quite the pressure that I'm seeing. Can you imagine going to work every day and feeling that somebody is sort of sexually making advances at you? Um, and I think one of the things you you skipped because you went to the, the moment of conflict or, or the climactic moment where Joseph is literally being like cornered and, um, and you know, and, and assaulted. assaulted. Um, really, what I want to go back to are the words Joseph uses when he refuses the first time what he says to her and I, i'd like to pay attention to this because again why do we say no to something there is something very attractive about the master's wife she represents power presumably she's well groomed she's a stepping stone we know other people have taken that direction to get upward in power and so i want to even look at his first moment of refusal where he says to her look with me here my master concerns himself about nothing in the house and whatever he he has placed he has placed in my custody there was no one greater in this house than i and he has denied me nothing but you since you are his wife so he reminds her i think of two things first of all that he's below her ultimately that there's a power dynamic here that he is in charge of the house but he has a master and the master is her husband and her husband has denied her to his slave Joseph. And um, and so first he uses a kind of diplomacy. And then he says something even more powerful, but he only says it afterwards. How then can I perpetuate this great perpetuate this great evil and have sinned against God? He reminds her also about morality 
about the evil that adultery represents, and he reminds her and himself that this will be a sin against God. And so if we ask how he manages to resist day in and day out and, uh, and until that fateful day when they're going to be alone, and we'll pick up the story in a moment to see where it takes us, you see that he has a lot of... Um, moral character. His moral character is based on two things. First of all, personal concerns for his future. He has a master and he doesn't want to be fired from this job, right? My master I, has denied. I, I thought it was also more than that in that regard, which is I think he, he really feels the trust. He, he feels, feels the trust. That's true. He it's, feels right. he's been trusted. Right. And how that's true. How would he ever betray his master in this way? Yeah, I think that's an even better reading. He wants to continue the trust of his master and and there's God. There's God and there's this evil. And uh, and he reminds her of this to no avail and over and over again. So how does the story continue, Alex, since you took us into the into the moment? So she, you know, as you use the word, assaults him. Mm -hmm. um, there's a day when there's literally nobody at home. Um, that seems to be the, the Rashi says there that it was a religious festival. Everybody was out at the carnival or everybody was out celebrating. And uh, she probably knew that Joseph being very diligent would be coming into work and um, she uses this opportunity to corner him and uh, literally assaults him and he has to run out of there. So I'm actually going to interrupt you to say if we go back to the verse then there was an opportune day when he entered the house to do his work no man of the household staff being there in the house that she caught hold of him and it's unclear actually in the Midrash questions whether he was innocent and this happened to him inadvertently or he deliberately goes back into the house having been worn down day in and day out by her offer and is ready to do the deed because he can no longer resist right he goes back into the house and she grabs hold of him and he leaves the garment in her hand so at the last minute sometimes, he changes his mind sometimes somebody might simply be worn down and even though they don't really want this relationship they don't want this they just can't stand the refusal anymore Absolutely, and we know that unfortunately from modern, uh, you know, modern tellings of, of parallel situations. However, I'm actually bringing a different reading, which it could be that he's ready to do it because he wants to. Because ultimately, uh, there is the power dynamic, but also she's a very attractive woman, and he's attracted to her. And you know what? Enough is enough. This is what I really want to do. Uh, and maybe he feels confident enough in his position in the household to be able to get away with it. Whatever it is, I think there are two possible readings. One is that uh, that he goes in and literally thought he was going to do work when no one was home. And the other is that he actually went in to, to, to succumb, but because he was choosing to succumb, right? And the third reading is one you brought, which is, okay, this is going to happen eventually. I'm being worn down and there's no real way out. I have, I have no choice. So... At the last minute, he mm -hmm. runs out. It's mm -hmm. very interesting. He's clearly taken off his robe. Yes. And he's ready to do the act. But then something jogs him. Right. What was it? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where um, Midrashic narrative is is all over that. In um, one, one, one suggestion is it comes from the reason. Reason. He suddenly snaps awake and remembers his master remembers the evil but the more powerful uh, explanation is what rashi brings in which so many of us remember from you know our our education he his father's face suddenly appears before him and um I, and i think that really speaks to even on a broader level what allows us to sometimes resist temptation uh, where do we get the character or the fiber to resist temptation and the idea that 
the values we were educated with, whether it was a, uh, a teacher, whether it was a parent, whether it was uh, a friend. Uh, and in the moment of, of this test, he resists. You know, it's, it's a really interesting story because this can be, story can be read in two very different directions. On the one hand, I think it's a, a very cautionary tale um, about the dangers of abuse, the dangers of abuse of power, mm -hmm. of a power imbalance, which can lead somebody to be exceedingly vulnerable. Um, but on the other hand, it's also a warning to every single one of us not to allow ourselves to drop our values and to remain principled. And in fact, the Talmud in, in, in Yuma, uh, Daf Lamed Hay, page 35, says that this is the reason why Yosef in Jewish tradition is called Yosef HaTzadik, that he was actually a young man, a 17-year-old here in Egypt, away from his family. And he really could have, as you said before, used this to climb the social ladder and maybe taken himself out of his slave status uh, through, the use, through this woman, but he had principles. And he, um, he didn't use this opportunity in order to do that. And he kept his, um, if you want, sexual purity or whatever you want to call it, and decided to keep his keep strong to his principles, even though it was exceedingly difficult. And you've certainly spoken about the things that might have done that, his arguments of principle, but also he turned around and says, well, I don't, Egyptian society is not where I want to become. I want to go back to my family. That's what seeing your father's face in the window is about, right? You see your father's face, you're saying, wait, am I gonna now detach myself from my whole past and from who I was? I still wanna have contact with that, which is ironic in the case of Joseph, after his family have actually sold him sold him down to Egypt. Right, that he still sees. And 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 there is a reading, I think it's uh, Rabbi Maidan, who says that at this point he thinks his father was part and party to that, right? That, that uh, his father is the one who sent him out to his brothers. And yet, despite whatever pain uh, he may feel, it's so deeply embedded in him, um, not just the love for his father, what his father has taught him, that almost unexpectedly, the Midrash suggests, uh, he remembers his father's face, the image, and even that idea, the image of his father, we're playing with visuals, right? Um, he's very beautiful, she sees him, and what does he, and, and desires him, and what does he see in this moment of desire, which the text leaves somewhat ambivalent, meaning has he come into the house in order to to kind of succumb or to 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 let his own sexual needs be met, and he and what does he see? He doesn't see her. He sees his father, and that allows him to uh, to to walk away. Nahama, you you teach sexuality here at Pardes, and um, I'm wondering what you what you take away from this story. This is an area that you um, you know cons a lot of people consult with you on these topics: Judaism and sexuality. Um, you teach many, many uh, young people, preparing them for marriage and what have you. So when you read this story, what sort of take homes do you have? What messages do you take from this story that maybe can can give us food for thought in our own lives? We live in an exceedingly sexual world today, over the internet, through advertising, everything seems to be sexualized. Where do we go with this? Right. So in general, when parents say to me or when educators say, how can we have these discussions? I think these stories are wonderful discussions. Um, and and as I said in the beginning, I mean, this happens to be a story about a man who's being sexually assaulted by a woman. And I really appreciate the Torah, including a story of this nature, because we often focus on the vulnerability of women and women are, are, are often perceived as more vulnerable. And there are more cases of vulnerability in this area than female to male. However, men, there are stories like this as well. And I think it's important to open them up and discuss them. 
Um, and so I think these stories can be about consensuality and the power dynamic and the problems in the power dynamic and uh, and what it means, and she refuses to listen, right? So really, this is a great place to have a conversation about consensuality with college students, for instance, by using the story to talk about what does it look like when there's a lack of consensuality. And, and what we didn't get to, Alex, is that um, he gets thrown in jail. Meaning he's the one who pays the price. She frames him. You know, the master comes back and she she basically makes a big deal. Look at what happened with the Hebrew slave you brought into the house. And uh, and the master gets angry and throws him in prison. And so um, he pays a price for the moral, you know, the moral fiber, for the moral ability to say no. Not everyone is going to be able to do that because the price is they're going to lose their job. They're going to uh, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be serious consequences. And the story doesn't allow us to pretend there's a happy ending here. There isn't a happy ending. Yosef is going to have to go into jail and claw his way out. The, uh, the what what Joseph has is the you know is the talent the ability and he learns to use his beauty to save his people but uh, but I think the danger element in these in these stories is so important the vulnerability of people when there's a power dynamic and uh, I'm going to share a, a, a quote from Jonathan Sachs which I think is so so relevant and I think every story in Breishit whether it's um, Sarah and Pharaoh and Rebecca and Abimelech and uh, even a little bit, maybe Rachel and Joseph, and then here with the uh, with Dina and with Tamar, there are a lot of stories in Brayshit that deal with sexual imbalance in a relationship. Uh, and I'm going to quote, sexual relationships are the test of all else. Do I respect other people as persons in their own right, or do I see them as means to my ends, instruments of my pleasure? Do I relate to you in freedom and dignity, or do I simply use you? The nature of the sexual encounter will not immediately but eventually affect all other social relationships. And um, and I can't tell you, Alex, how many married couples I talk about, uh, talk to, where I remind them that the end-all be-all is not just taking in a sexual relationship, it's the giving in the sexual relationship. And it's so important uh, in, in loving, intimate, consensual relationships that there also be real communication about what one person wants to do with and for the other. And uh, and that gets more and more complicated uh, in, in, in a world in which there are, you know, people are encouraged to have very little boundary in, you know, boundary setting in terms of what they do or what they like and so on. And then when there's another person, you have to realize there's another person you're, you're including in this. So it's not just about you and the giving and the taking have to be a part of this, uh, what what can be a healthy relationship. And I think Jonathan Sachs says that very well. It's very easy to relate to the other person as an instrument of pleasure, but then you lose the opportunity for a devekut, which is what the Torah describes uh, as the sexual act, the ultimate, the ability to connect to one another, right? This deep uh, sexuality allows the opportunity for deep, meaningful uh, connection and intimacy. But if you make it into junk food, where it's just about, oh, that tastes really good or that feels really good, then uh, then it becomes uh, meaningless. And then you can understand how you don't even see the person who is involved, the other person who's who's engaging with you. Um, that's very true. Um, I don't certainly see, think that uh, Potiphar's wife totally didn't see Joseph. She looked at him just as a slave boy and he could be used by her. But uh, maybe I can, can conclude by, first of all, echoing what an amazing idea that you said just now. Um, this is a great opportunity to discuss with teens uh, or people around the table or adults for that matter. Uh, sometimes biblical stories are fantastic to have a discussion about very sensitive things that are difficult to bring up in a sort of safe way because we're talking about the parsha, but we're really talking about life. So I can't 
you know, as an educator, I can't recommend more to use this story to talk about some of the boundaries um, in our own world. And that's uh, something which I, I look at this story. And uh, one of the things I remember a few years ago, um, I think it was Mike Pence um, had said that he uh, has made a, a, a vow to his wife, something like that, that he will never be uh, alone or never have dinner alone with another woman. And it raised the whole discussion, which in Jewish law is called yichud, the idea that um, we try and ensure that we don't have a, a situation of seclusion, uh, which allows for sexual opportunity. Um, that in office spaces, we should have, uh, you know, glass panes in the door so that you don't have closed uh, offices, which nobody can peer into, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, this is, a, I think, a wonderful piece of advice which the, the the when the text tells us that the assault happened on a day that there was nobody else in the house, um, maybe something we can take away is to make sure that um, we are in situations where where we can never be blamed, where we can be above any sort of a suspicion, where the people we're with can feel safe because they know that other people can look in and there's nothing uncomfortable about that situation and that we're not left alone with somebody who might themselves feel uncomfortable um, both ourselves as the person feeling vulnerable and also ensuring that we don't make anybody else feel that they're in that situation. And, and I would conclude, I would say, with you know, seclusion or the laws of Yehud are learned from a terrible story of sexual assault between David's uh, daughter Tamar and her half-brother Amnon. And, and the Talmud suddenly says, wait a minute, we knew there was danger uh, for certain relationships, but it didn't occur to us that we had to protect unmarried women. And uh, and suddenly a whole area of law evolves from the awareness of that danger. And so, um, yes, I think that creating safe spaces for men and women and men and men and women and women uh, to be together without the threat of any sort of uh, harassment, sexual or other, is important. And I would just make one more comment that suddenly came up as you were talking. Um, sometimes a partner feels, I mean, even in relationship, that if I keep asking over and over again, I'm not, uh, I'm not pressuring someone, right? It's consensual because they said yes in the end. Mm -hmm. I think th this is a, a great story if we're talking about education to say, um, if someone says no, you don't ask 13 more times in case they're going to say yes, right? So this idea of, of the yima'in, if someone refuses, that really should be the end of the conversation. Unfortunately, today, I, I do hear the stories of, well, you know, finally, I said yes, because, because I just couldn't keep saying no anymore. And so this really is a great opportunity for parents to talk to their children and for uh, educators to talk to their students about creating safe environments. Okay, wow. So that was quite quite an, an amazing analysis of this parsha. Thank you, Nechama, um, for bringing your wisdom to bear. It's been really fun learning together with you. Yeah, thank you, Alex. I uh, Always more enjoyable to learn in Chevruta than almost anything else. Amazing. And uh, we look forward to all our listeners. We'll see you all next week, or we'll, you'll hear us next week, and uh, have a wonderful week. Thanks again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Be sure to tune in next week as Rabbi Elchanan Miller discusses Parashat Miketz. Thanks for listening.